Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When a friend invited me a few years back to a Broadway show that had just opened called Hamilton, a hip-hop musical about the life of one of the most luminescent founding fathers, I have to admit I was a little skeptical. Well, it turned out to be one of the most extraordinary nights of theater I've ever experienced. This past Independence Day weekend, Disney Plus rolled out a film of that stunning production, so I thought it would be a perfect time to reach into the Axe Files vault for my 2016 podcast with the young genius who created this masterpiece and starred in it as Alexander Hamilton. Here's my conversation with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, I worked with your dad back in 2001 yes. on a race for mayor, Freddie Ferrer, you remember it well. Yeah. And I remember him saying to me then, you know, my kid, he really, he, he likes to perform, he's really talented, he writes, and he said, I just don't know if you can make a living doing that. Yeah, I didn't either. And he was, so he said, I, I you know, I want to encourage him, but uh, what, what, tell me about, he, he's one of the great political consultants in New York. You must have grown up around politics. Your mom's a clinical psychologist. How do you end up as a storyteller and a musician and all of that? I think if you were to write a recipe for Hamilton and you said, let's make the guy's mom a psychologist and put the guy's dad in politics, it's the perfect recipe for Hamilton, uh, uh-huh. in retrospect. Um, but I think um, you know both of those professions really are about telling stories. It's about the stories we tell ourselves. It's about the stories we tell the world about ourselves. Um, My parents met in grad school for psychology. And my dad, imagine my dad trying to have patience with a patient. You couldn't. Um, And so he, you know, sort of took everything he learned and and applied it to the world of politics and and consulting um, and advocacy. Um, But it's the same skill set. It's about creating a narrative. And it's about, um, you know, how we see ourselves and how we project that I into the world. I always say that. I always say, people say, well, you were a reporter. How did you become a uh-huh. political? It's the, same, it's the same deal. We're telling stories and hopefully authentic right. stories, which I think is what makes them Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I'm here and you think you're interviewing me, but I'm actually going to interview you because I'm really interested in your involvement with the West Wing. I'm a West mm-hmm. Wing fanatic. Um, and I genuinely believe that that President Santos' storyline towards the end sort of set the template for how Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008. Well, here's an interesting story. Eli Addy, who was by then, I, I think he may be, have been the chief writer by then on the West Wesleyan Wing. alum, go West. And uh, he um, called me and he said, I'm thinking of creating this character. And it was the Santos character. And you, we just won the Senate race in Illinois with Obama. He said, I'm interested in your experiences 
because I think it might help me shape this character. So we had a long conversation, but I said, but you know, I want to talk to you about another guy I worked for, which is Freddie Ferrer and an experience he had. And Freddie, as you know, because your dad was intimately involved, was running to become the first Hispanic mayor of New York. And he told us that uh, some major figure in New York took him to some private club and said to him, Freddie, you see all these people around you? They're not going to let you become mayor of New York. You're not from here. And uh, I said that that was a really searing experience. And the character you create needs to be aware of that. Yeah. And uh, so uh, you're right that um, the those characters helped animate Santos. And maybe, I mean, there's so, the West Wing still resonates. I mean, I'm amazed. I have this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. These kids... Um, they have West Wing nights. They're still oh, watching yeah. the West Wing. Why? What is it about the West Wing? Well, that it's people- it's it's part idealism. It's part humanity. Right? We those characters are really flawed. I mean, if Toby Ziegler was really in charge of communication, he was having breakdowns and fits of idealism, it would be a very dysfunctional yes. office. Yeah. But maybe you, realistic. Maybe know. realistic. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not yeah, there. But I, you you hope that the people in that building are having the kind of idealistic debates that, that you hope that that's what's going on in the highest halls of power, that they're actually talking about what's best for the world and they fall short and they lose votes, but um, they're aiming for um, the best of us and, and they do. And it's, uh, you know, Sorkin captured it in a really sort of brilliant way and in a style that is so like your smartest friends talking on their best day. Yeah, sometimes too smart, actually. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> the dialogue gets so smart that, you almost felt like saying enough already, yeah. okay? Nobody talks this fast and this smart or is so witty in re- re- retort. But uh, do you feel you, – you wrote uh, this amazing piece of work. Um, when you look at today's politics uh, and you think of the people who started this whole deal, the founding fathers, what would they say about uh, about the politics of today? I think they'd recognize some of it. I think they'd be awed at the speed of it. I think that's the thing that is really different from then to now. Because honestly, the fights are just our fights. I think of our country's debates as the same fights you would have with your siblings. Like the fight you have with your brother or sister now is the same fight you had when you were little kids. It's just the adult variation. But it's about your temperament yeah. and it's about what you want. And and I think they our don't country, run negative ads, but yeah, exactly. Negative. But I think our country debates are the same. It's what is the size and shape of role in our daily lives. What is uh, our role with regards to other countries? What um, the the legacy of slavery and its reverberations, what are the effects of that? These are things we're going to be discussing as long as we are a country. And um, and we're still discussing those things in this campaign, but I think the founders would be awed that you could write a tweet and it would shape the conversation for a day and that the number of issues spinning would be happening so fast. I mean, they were already doing it with newspapers. Jefferson had a newspaper. Hamilton had a newspaper. They talked smack about each other across these newspapers. I mean, Dirty Pool already existed. Um, Way dirty. In fact, some of the things that were done in the 19th century, uh, if they were raised to the level of television now, would would make people blanch even by today's standards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's – I don't think they'd be shocked by the tone and tenor, but they'd be shocked by the speed of it and, and how it aggregates. Yeah, no, shocked or dismayed. 
I mean, because, you know, you think of how uh, the sort of contemplation that went into the Federalist Papers, yeah. which your man Hamilton had so right. much to do with, how, uh, the notion that, you know, come, someone can sort of fire off 140 characters and start a big debate, and the fact that decisions are made on uh, on on these sort of much quicker time frames, what would they think about that? I don't know. I mean, look at the Federalists. I, for that era, that was extraordinarily fast. That's six months, and it's you know a hundred some odd essays um, trying to convince the U.S. to to ratify uh, this Constitution, and that we're all agreeing that we will be governed by this form and this document and this body. Um, it, that's really fast for that amount of time. Um, I think I think Hamilton would be thrilled at the speed of it. I think Jefferson would not. Jefferson was not a guy who liked to handle things directly. He used proxies. He used James Callender. He'd you know he'd used reporters to sort of do his dirty work for him. Um, but uh, I think Hamilton would be writing extremely long political pieces right now if he were alive today. Maybe too long for us to tolerate reading. Would he? Uh, obviously, you wrote about his flaws. Some mm-hmm. of them were very personal. Would he be able to survive in an environment like this? Um, I, I think about this a lot because you think of Lincoln being a depressive and mm-hmm. Kennedy had, you know, uh, Addison's disease, which was life-threatening yeah. and all kinds of flaws. Roosevelt hid his uh, – and obviously Hamilton had indiscretions that he, would have made news. Absolutely. I think, though, Hamilton would have been – I think he would have – the thing about Hamilton that's so extraordinary is that he's incredibly adaptable. I mean, that guy suffered such a brutal childhood and survived it and came here pretty much intact. Um, that being said, his major flaw was he didn't know when to stop. So, you know, it would be – the Twitter equivalent would be retweeting some guy who does an unpopular opinion and dragging all these unnecessary debates in um, – you know, I think that he would he would never know when to stop and oversharing. I mean, he's like the first oversharer. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, but the scrutiny that these guys came mm-hmm. under that that the people come under now yeah. would yeah. I wonder if we would be if we uh, would have deprived ourselves of some of the greatest leaders if we. I wonder a- that too. Applied yeah. the same standards. So, just talk a little bit about growing up. And how you like? I have this moment. JFK came to Stuyvesant Town, where mm, I grew up, yeah. in uh, 1960, and I was five years old. And the whole event was so transfixing that it actually sparked my imagination about politics. And I, from that point on, I was like hooked. Is there a moment in your life when you said, "Man, I want to perform. I want to write. I want to tell stories. I want to." Yeah, you know, I, 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 every day I am even more grateful that I went to a public elementary school that had art and music next to math and science, and they were just equal uh, in the eyes of all. Um, I went to Hunter Elementary School uh, on 94th and Park, and um, ev- we had an amazing music teacher named Miss Ames, and the sixth graders would put on a musical every year, and the entire school would come. And so by the time you're in first, second grade, you're aware, oh, I'm going to be in sixth grade one day. What's going to be the sixth grade play when we're sixth graders? So it's actually an entire childhood of anticipation 
to perform in a musical. Um, and I you didn't did, write it. Did I you? didn't write it. No, it was West Side Story. It was Captain <laughs> Hook. It was Peter Pan. It was uh, Oklahoma. Um, and our for our sixth grade play, they kind of ran out of age appropriate musicals, so we did like condensed versions of the previous six years. That's a lethal dosage of musical theater at a young age, and yet. I got to play Bernardo. I got to play Captain Hook. I got to play Conrad Birdie. I was a farmer in Oklahoma. I was a son in Fiddler. Um, and that notion, um, I, I think when you grow up doing theater, we, we couldn't afford theater. We saw Broadway maybe three times before I was an adult. Um, but doing theater, you learn all the best values that are going to serve you in your life. You learn about collaboration. You learn about doing something not for the grades or what it can get you, but just for the purpose of making something great. You make friends in different grades. So when you're in your the thick of your adolescent drama of who likes who and who hates who and who's friends with who, you can go hang out with your friend in another grade where they don't even know anybody. Um, and so, you know, high school theater sort of saved me. Um, but to have a, a moment similar to your Kennedy moment, um, Stephen Sondheim actually came and spoke to my class uh, senior year. I was directing West Side Story. Um, he was friends with uh, the parent of a student at Hunter, and he took us through how he created the opening to West Side Story. Um, he was he said we wrote lyrics and Riff was named Riff because he actually came in holding a trumpet and he started singing us these lyrics that don't appear in the show. And then Jerome Robbins said, I can dance all that better. And they threw out their weeks of work. And that was my first glimpse of how a musical's made. And you know, sometimes you throw out good stuff so you can get to the best stuff, and it's about the best idea in the room winning. And um, that's that's really what made – that's the first thing that pulled back the curtain on, on how to make a show. When did you start writing or thinking about writing your own material? I started writing musicals in high school. We had a student-written theater group named Brick Prison, uh, named after our, our building. If you ever see Hunter's building, it's a converted armory. There are no windows. Um, and so – by the time I was in ninth grade, I was trying to write plays that would be performed. And there was a student selection committee. You can make as much stuff as you want. If you propose a budget of 200, 300 bucks, they'll give you some lights and they'll give you a stage. Um, so I just found myself caught up, so caught up in making things that I sort of let film by the wayside and was writing as much theater as I could. Uh, uh, we got to take a, a short break and we'll be back with Lin-Manuel Miranda. When did you start writing In the Heights, which was your first big breakthrough work? Yeah, I started writing that show my sophomore year in college, and it wasn't for course credit, and it wasn't uh, – it was because I really needed to write it. Um, I was sort of facing – Why? The, um, a lot of reasons. Um, I think it's it's three sort of sources of energy that went into it. One – I was breaking up with my high school girlfriend of four and a half years, and I had a lot of time and angst on my hands. She was studying abroad, and it was not – the long distance was not happening. Um, two, um, I was living in a Latino program house called La Casa del Bisu Campos. It's sort of – you write an essay to get in. It's one of the most beautiful houses on campus, and you live with other quote-unquote Latino community leaders. So I was suddenly in a house with other kids – 
who had the same sort of first generation upbringing as me. Um, you know, I went to Hunter, so there weren't a lot of right. Latino kids I was yeah, friends that, with. That we should point out that's a pretty elite public school. You have yeah. to test into it and so totally, on. Totally, totally. So it's I, not I was like I, a, it's not like a in the hood kind of. Yeah, view. no, it's it's in the richest zip code in the United States. Yeah. On the contrary, I, so I I was in the hood uptown and and commuting there, um, and so you know it was really the first time I kind of made close friends with Latinos my age who. Also, like, spoke Spanish at home and English at school and had sort of shared cultural references like Mark Anthony and Ricky Martin. And this was happening at the same time that Ricky Martin had just performed on the Grammys and, like, the world was looking at Latin culture being like, oh, you guys are cute. Your music is great. <laughs> um, so it was also um, this moment of, like, why have I been – not using the stuff I live at home in my work. I'd written two musicals in high school and they both sounded like musical, quote unquote musical. Yeah. They didn't have any sort of cultural anything to them. They were just sort of rockish type songs that told the story. And so In the Heights was my attempt to really bring in everything I knew about who I was. It was Latin music. It was hip hop. It was set in the neighborhood uh, near where I grew up. And and just sort of like, what happens if I bring all of me to something? Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, we, I, uh, I had Paul Simon on here a few weeks ago, and he talked about, I was asking him, you know, because he brings all these eclectic sounds into it, and I said, well, you know, how does that process work? He said, I just hear things that interest me. Yeah. And I and I use them, and I, I presume it's the same. Absolutely, and Paul Simon is such an incredible example too of like going to another corner of the world, and playing with the best musicians in yeah. that corner of the world. But what comes out of him is a Paul Simon song. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't confuse it with a Lady Smith Black Bombazo song. It's it's that sensibility filtered filtered through his sensibility, and I think that's true for me too. I think um, one of the fun things about sort of finding your voice as a writer is you chase your heroes and you you ch- you you kind of emulate this thing from here and this thing from here, and in doing so and in falling short of that, you you find your own voice. And and Hamilton's an amazing. I mean, Hamilton is everything I know and every influence I love. Um, and it's sort of the kitchen sink um, thrown at these characters in order to to tell this story. Hamilton, I mean, this is, you've famously talked about this a lot, but how this whole thing came about. But what, what, what interested me is you were going on vacation and the thing you picked up was a thick book of history. Yeah. Why? I'm a big biography buff. Um, not necessarily a history buff prior to to Ron's book. Um, but my favorite book growing up was Chuck Jones's autobiography about making cartoons in the Warner Brothers era. Um, I loved Brando's autobiography. It's really, I mean, talk about an unreliable narrator, but it's really <laughs> fascinating reading. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of reading someone's, stepping into someone's life and sort of living there for a while. So I had written a paper in 11th grade about Hamilton. All I knew was that his son died in a duel, and then he died in a duel three years later. And I just thought that was really interesting. I was like, that that's not a story you'll hear about any other founders. Um, how do you walk into that willingly when your son has just died of the same thing? Isn't that like a cautionary, the ultimate cautionary tale? Um, so I remember doing a paper about that. And then just reading great reviews on the back of the book and thinking, well, this will be really interesting reading. It'll have a good ending. Um, and and then really being blown away once I started reading it. I didn't know he wasn't born here. I didn't know um, any of anything about him other than that he was a treasury secretary. Um, so his origins and the Dickensian origins he survived to get here. And then the other thread that kept running through the book was his writing. 
he wrote his way off the island. He wrote essays under a pseudonym like our favorite rappers do, um, you know, espousing uh, independence from Britain. And in doing so and in his bravery on the battlefield becomes Washington's secretary. Um, but then he also writes his way into trouble. He writes the Reynolds pamphlet. He writes a screed against John Adams while he's still president. Um, so it's – it is uh, – you know, it's it's as you great, say, he doesn't know when to stop. He doesn't know when to stop. It's his, his strength is also his flaw. Um, you know, he he his talents are so useful when he's fighting a war, and we all have a common enemy. But when we don't anymore, they turn inward and they turn towards his fellow founders, and uh, you know that creates our two party system. I mean, it's responsible for so much that I just take for granted day to day. Um, so it was sort of both an origin story and an immigrant story, and you know, I thought. He also writes so much. Hip-hop's the only way to tell it. Um, we use more words per measure than any other genre of music. Uh, so it just it just felt like it had the energy. Um, I, could ju- I just felt like I knew the guy. In what, what point in that book did you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with this. I'm going to make – I'm going to turn this into something. At the end of the second chapter. <laughs> really? Yeah, it that was that early. soon. As soon as I got to the part, there's, you know, there's a letter Hamilton writes a friend. It's one of the first things we have of his. He's about 14 years old, and he writes this thing, and if you were writing a musical, you could not come up with a better sentence. He says, um, you know, I, I may be said to be building castles in the air. Um, you know, this whole thing might be a fantasy to paraphrase. He goes, but we have seen such schemes successful when the projector is constant. Um, I shall conclude by saying that I wish there was a war. That's everything. I mean, that's everything about Hamilton. It's, I know I sound crazy for wanting to get out of here, but... We have seen such schemes successful when the projector of those dreams is constant, and then he wishes there was a war. And that is such an indicator of, oh, I know that my rank and my birth isn't getting me anything. I need to fight in a war in order to show myself, in order to prove my worth, in order to rise in society. Um, so it shows this astonishing intelligence and awareness about where he is and this drive. I saw somewhere that you also saw echoes of your dad in him. <laughs> yeah, you've met my dad. About that. I, ha- I have, but they haven't. So yeah, I mean, my dad came here. My dad, my dad was really is Hamilton esque in his brilliance. My dad had already finished college by eighteen. Um, he'd finished University of Puerto Rico by eighteen. He just kept skipping grades and you know leapfrogging over everybody. And he had a good job as a manager of a bank in Sears. He probably would be running Sears in Puerto Rico if he'd stayed. Um, but there was someone from NYU who who. Uh, was scouting. They had a new minority outreach program. What was program. his family like? Um, like all sort of working class. My, my grandmother ran a travel agency. My grandfather um, was very involved in um, in local politics in Puerto Rico um, and was the general manager of the sort of town local credit union, La Cooperativa. Um, so his, his dad was very politically active. Um, so and he went to New York. He went to New York. He got a full ride. They offered him a full ride to NYU for postdoc uh, psychology. Came here without speaking English at 18. Um, he lived with a cousin and uh, – sorry, he lived with an aunt and he practiced his English with his two cousins who were six and four years old because they were the only ones who would make fun of him. He sold uh, very left-leaning Puerto Rican newspapers uh, to, to make money and he um, – and sort of learned English and studied psychology while he was here at the same time. And then he met my mom, uh, who also uh, got into the program and then never went back home. And um, you guys are incredibly close. I mean, your family is still very close yeah. and collaborative and and so on. What, what 
Talk about what that means. Well, I'm very, I'm very lucky in that. I have a sister who's devoted her life to developing the other hemisphere of the brain. She is the CFO of my dad's company. So on all financial matters, that's who I trust. Um, you know, and my dad is, um, he can't help, you know, he's the same guy who told you my son is talented yeah. and I want to find a way to encourage him. Yes. And now that all of the success has happened, um, it, you know, I used to work for him in the summers and it didn't go well. Like I don't do well working for him. You wrote him. some jingles, right? Yeah, I wrote some jingles. You I wrote, wrote one for Elliot Spitzer. I wrote one for Spitzer before we knew what we yes. know. Um, yeah. and probably a story to a longer story to tell there now. Too. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, I never even met him. It was he was just one of my dad's clients. He was an clients. old client of mine, not in that race. But. Yeah, but um, I wrote music for that, and I sort of would write whatever. Ne- it was it was not so much jingles as background music for mm-hmm. ads. So I wrote a lot of background Freddie ads, and I can write a negative ad or a positive ad in you know thirty seconds. It's not that hard. Here's here's a negative ad. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. David Axelrod says, <laughs> da, 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 da. then, uh, beats Alsa music, bah, 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 bah. vote Freddie Ferrer today. I'm Freddie Ferrer and I approve of this message. Like, it's very simple. Uh-huh. Um, so that was a very nice way to make rent um, while I was working for him. Um, and then, and now he kind of works for me. I mean, right. in ter- especially in terms of Spanish language stuff, um, because that's such an important world and, uh, and you know, a, your typical Broadway outlet doesn't prioritize a Spanish language interview the same way they would their Broadway outlet. So my dad's been great about sort of keeping the balance of like you have to talk to everybody. How are you? Uh, are you are you penetrating the communities uh, with this? I mean, Hamilton is a very. Um, I mean, in elite circles, it is astronomical, astronomically popular, and you've won the uh, num- numerous. Pulitzer Prize and all of this stuff. Um, right. How, the, how has, it, has it reached, like, your old neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of the incredible thing is that one of the benefits of Hamilton, and I was nervous about it, but it turned out to be wonderful, is that the whole show is on the album. I mean, it's a yeah. sung-through yeah. musical. So um, actually, a year ago this week, we we first uh, streamed the entire thing on NPR, and that's when everything really started to change, when people could get sucked into the story musically and really hear the whole story. I mean, there are fans of Hamilton all over the world who you know may never get to New York, um, but that's okay. I mean, I, I'm someone who grew up also falling in love with Broadway that way. I fell in love with Man of La Mancha and Camelot. I have never seen productions of their shows to this day. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they can match the one in my head. And so, you know, what we're prioritizing because, you know, the elite are can afford Broadway anyway. Yes. Um, we've got this program that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation in partnership with the Gilder Learman uh, Institute um, to bring 20,000 school kids uh, to see the show. Um, they're all Title I schools. They write their own pieces. Um, they go, what in history hasn't been covered enough? And they write their own pieces. They perform them for us on the day. Uh-huh. We do a it's dedicated Wednesday matinees. So they perform for us. We do a Q&A and then we perform for them. And it's the best part of the Hamilton experience by far. And we're duplicating that program here in Chicago. Um, yeah. So we'll be having uh, Chicago school kids. Your show's just opening here. Yes, yes. We, are, we start previews uh, on Tuesday the 27th. Um, so we'll be here at the aptly named Private Bank Theater. Uh, what better name for a Hamilton show. Um, and so, yeah, so we're, we're, we're duplicate because that's 
that's really where the world changes, right? That's where you get a kid who realizes hip-hop is fair game for musical theater. He sees Hamilton's insane struggle from poverty to glory, and and it becomes, um, you know, they're not all going to go into theater, but they are going to have to reckon with Hamilton's And they're absorbing life. it. Absolutely. You know, uh, one of the things that concerns me is that uh, with all of the budgetary problems we've had, art and music programs are always on the chopping block. Yeah. And, That's twas ever thus. Yeah, but uh, but it could be. But it, for there, there are a lot of creative geniuses. Maybe people like you who uh, who who may be deprived of their <clears throat> opportunity because of that. So what you guys are doing is really important. Let me ask you this: You, um, I mentioned before, you won a Pulitzer Prize, Grammys, Tonys. You've won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, how old are you? I'm 36. Do you worry about, do you ever worry about competing against yourself? Do you worry about the fact that maybe I did my greatest work uh, at a, and, and now what do I do? Uh, no, I, you know, you can't rank it. That's the thing. And actually, you know what it has been a great um, sort of um, example of that is uh these things that popped up outside the theater at the Rogers called the Ham for Ham Show. So we have this $10 lottery. It used to be a live drawing. Now it's online. But we draw names out of a hat and, you know, the first row is 10 bucks. Um, so it's 26 people who see it for 10 bucks. 700 people showed up for our first show. What do you do with that? And it's, and it's July and it's in New York City. So it's 100 degrees. I got on a megaphone and said, thank you all for coming. I love you. <laughs> Tommy Kale said, you should do that every day we're in previews um, because we do not want to send 600 angry people into the streets of New York in the summer. And it became this show. It became like, we're going to do a little five-minute show outside. And I brought in other cast members and I brought in Patti LuPone. And um, I say all that to say – Whenever I would do a particularly good one, I couldn't worry about topping myself. Otherwise, we'd get too big for the block. Um, you know, Hamilton is everything I know about musical theater right now. At the same time, I'm always trying to learn with every project because I can't do something for the sake of the success. It's the least uh, predictable thing on earth. Hamilton could have closed and opened in a night. Um, one out of Were five. Were you surprised at how at the reaction to it? Yes. Um, I knew we'd have teachers. I knew we'd get school groups. I thought we'd have a nice, healthy run. That's the practical side of me. No one knew it would sort of take over the world the way it has. Um, and that's really sort of humbling and amazing. I have a confession to make, which is that I was going to New York uh, right when you're – I think you were in previews on, on your, in Broadway. And Joel Benenson, who's the pollster for Hillary Clinton and was for Barack Obama and is – one of my dearest friends said, well, we've got tickets to Hamilton, and we should go see this. And my wife and I were coming. We say, well, there's so many good plays on Broadway, and I don't know, Alexander Hamilton, I don't get it, hip-hop, and so on. And like everybody else, um, I was kind of blown away by the, by the experience. But I Thanks. suspect a lot of people had that same, uh, that same experience. Tell me what you're uh, working on now. Um, I'm writing – well, 
Concurrently with Hamilton, I've been writing songs for this Disney animated musical. It's called Moana. It opens November 23rd, and um, it's it's really overwhelming. I mean, I, I grew up – I was lucky enough to grow up in sort of the second golden age of Disney musicals, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. Those all happened when I was really ready <laughs> to receive them. Um, so to have written songs for uh, and be a part of that Disney legacy, uh, I'm really proud of it. I worked on it with two other songwriters. Um, I got that job the week we found out we were pregnant for with our first kid. Um, so I can measure his life. He's about to turn two in the time I've worked on it. Um, and it'll probably be his first movie. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that and really proud of it. And you're headed off to... Uh... Uh, to London. To London, yes. I'm I'm the property of the Walt Disney Company for the next little bit. So I'm there's a we're making a sequel to Mary Poppins, um, and uh, I'm with. Are you in the Dick Van Dyke? I'm and I play the Dick Van Dyke position. I'm that's not the same role. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to envision. This. Yeah, totally. Um, Emily Blunt is playing Mary Poppins. Um, it's uh, Jane and Michael Banks have grown up. And Mary Poppins is coming back to help with their kids, and so I play a lamplighter uh, named Jack. So I'm 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 aware of Mary, I and uh, I get to go on some of the fun adventures. And um, how how long are you occupied with that? How long I, I'm you... I'm there a lot of next year, so that's a big adjustment uh, for me. You know, I I wrote a whole show about how I don't want to leave Washington Heights. Uh, now I'm moving to London for a little bit, but it's 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 an exciting adventure. Our son is too young enough to go to school, so it's sort of the perfect time for us to sort of travel and live somewhere else. One last break, and we'll be back with Lin Manuel Miranda. you see yourself doing more historical figures telling more of those stories? I don't know. I mean, I kind of go wherever the inspiration takes me. I, you know, I never would have predicted I'd be reading John Meacham books and reading all of this, uh, all of these uh, historical books, but that's where Hamilton led me. So, you know, I have a bunch of ideas for what the next thing might be, and I'm sort of waiting to see which one raises its hand and doesn't let me go. You, um, you, you also... You've not been active in politics per se, but you've been active on on the cause of Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, why did you get so involved? Because in no one else was. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I saw firsthand stories from my family and the increasing economic crisis, and 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 reports. Do you from still my have family father. there? Yeah, I have family. I have uh, I have cousins and aunts and uncles. I have a lot of family there. Um, my dad's whole side, and so. Um, and it wasn't being talked about. It wasn't being talked about on the news. It wasn't, you know, except for in political circles, it wasn't really being discussed. So I just said, let me make as much noise as possible. Um, and, and you know, in a, in a Congress where not even a, you know, Supreme Court justice can get confirmed, we got something done. It's not perfect. It's a, there's a ton of problems with it, but um, it forestalled default, and I'm grateful for that. In this um, celebrity culture, what does it say that you – um, could move. I bet you, when you showed up to testify at Congress, that everybody was in their chair. Uh, which you know, you they could have brought experts, uh, officials, uh, people who are who who are full time steeped in these issues, and that wouldn't be. 
the yeah. case. So you're using your celebrity. Uh, yeah, I think I think what what the success of Hamilton has brought me is a megaphone, um, and I I try to think of it as a literal megaphone. If you see a guy in the street and he's just screaming to a megaphone all day, you tune him out. Um, so I try to use it sparingly and in places where I think I can make a difference. You know, I sort of injected myself into the debate over uh, criminalizing bots. Those are applications that can you know buy an entire Beyonce concert's worth of tickets and mark up prices uh, because there was legislation on the table. My dad said, if you say something about this, it'll get attention. Um, so it's about using the megaphone sparingly and and when it can be effective. If I'm screaming at you all day, you're going to tune me out. And you gave, uh, I know you made a, a, a big donation to uh, voter turnout efforts uh, mm-hmm. in Florida. Why did you do that? Uh, I think it's so important. Um, you know, Latinos are the sleeping giant of this country. It, if if we show up with our votes the way we've shown up in numbers, um, we can change the tenor of the debate in this country, which is right now as xenophobic as I've ever seen it in my lifetime. And so, um, you know, we showed up in 2012 and there was a lot of talk about, wow, Latinos really showed up. Like we're going to have to speak to the issues that matter to them. And then someone said, no, we're not. Um, and so we, right. you know, we've got to show back up again because, um, you know, our, our issues are on the table. You, you, um, you talk about the xenophobia. Um, how do you personally react to that? How do you feel about that? It's kind of interesting to me. You, you, you've emerged as this big star on the American scene at a time when um, you have uh, a candidate who's 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 really, sort of in some ways, targeted Hispanics. Yeah. Um, and maybe in reaction to the emergence of uh, Latino Absolutely culture. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that uh, I don't take it as personally. As perhaps I should, because I have a long view of history, having worked on Hamilton. Um, there's a long, ignoble tradition of pointing at the newest people in this country and saying they're the reason you don't have jobs. Um, that's that's as old as the Irish and the Italians and, and the Jews. Jews after World yeah. War II and. Um, and so that's that's old. That's that's really old. This is as malignant as I've ever seen it. Um, but it's an old tradition. And so um, I think the only way to really fight back is to speak up and vote. My dad was an immigrant from Eastern Europe in the twenties. He came here, and I think the year or two after they passed the big uh, anti-immigrant legislation that uh, slammed the door on Jewish immigration until uh, after World War Two. Uh, in 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 a significant way, so you're right. This is yeah, but it's ugly. It's ugly, and it's and 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 particularly with regards to immigration, it's sort of something that you know the it's gotten so um, heated. You can't even talk about it rationally. You can't talk about the people who are here and make a difference, and you know have kids. Um, you know they're here already. That's this is not a th- you know like they're here and they contribute in right. ways big and small. And and the the debate has gone so beyond rational. I think the only way to reset it is for Latinos to show up in such large numbers that it can't be ignored anymore. But that doesn't seem to be happening right now. Right now, there seems to be a kind of indifference in the, in despite all of this debate, there seems to be kind of indifference among voters. I presume that's why you contributed yeah. the, the the money. Yeah, and you know, I also think it's um, 
I, I contributed money, and I'm and we're doing a, Hamilton's doing a big voter turnout thing as well. I, I directed uh, three commercials that are going to be coming out soon with the Hamilton cast. I rewrote some lyrics. Um, you know, it's it's all hands on deck. I, I think um, I think young people need to show up and vote. I think they need to be aware of the. Um, the sacrifices so many people made for so long for everyone to be able to vote, um, to see um, how legislators in certain states are trying to deny you of your right to vote and, you know, you know, cutting up uh, districts so that you can't vote. And, you know, it, it wouldn't be – they wouldn't be trying so hard if it weren't powerful, if it weren't powerful for you to show up on election day. So it's, it's really important to, to, to make that difference. When uh, we, uh, we began by talking about your, your dad and his involvement in New York politics, what, what about the theater of New York as a political uh, arena? You've seen some really big figures. Some of them are Trump himself is sort of a product of that uh, environment. Do you, ever, do you look at these things with a theatrical eye? <laughs> yeah, I look at everything with a theatrical eye. You know, it's interesting. One of the one of the things that's different about working in theater in New York than anywhere else, than any other entertainment medium, really, is you meet your heroes quickly. You know, it's not like music that has lots of different centers of power. There's Nashville, there's Atlanta, there's L.A. Um, or the movies, you know, which are in Hollywood, but you could go your whole life without meeting other people. We all work within the same 15 blocks. So I met John Kander off-Broadway at In the Heights. I met Stephen Sondheim in high school, as I told you. And so, you know, Hamilton's also the beneficiary of that, that I could call John Weidman and say, Hamilton's kicking my ass. Do you have any advice for me? Um, and it's also, I find the theater community very collegial. It's similar to what you have here in Chicago um, in that, you know, we're all working hard to make the thing. Whether you like someone's show or not, you recognize, man, it is very hard to get to this point um, and you respect that. And so, I, you know, I find a level of collegiality with, um, with my fellow composers because I can't write the way Andrew Lloyd Webber writes. I can't write the way Tom Kitt writes. Um, we, you could give us the same subject. We'd write totally different songs. You, all you can kind of do is, you know, eat lunch and <laughs> say hi. <laughs> but politics itself, yeah. uh, you, you, uh, we, we, we talked about yeah. uh, 2001. Yeah, there's one thing that, that's very interesting that Broadway shows share with 19th century candidates, which is that um, you can't say you, you're going to Broadway. You know, uh, back in the day, uh, candidates would never say, I don't want to run for president, but if the people should ask me to serve, I would yield willingly. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's about as close you get to a declaration. And it's the same with the Broadway show. If you say, if I said today, I'm writing Axelrod the musical and it's coming to Broadway tomorrow, the critics would by have way, their knives roll, out. That rolls off the tongue, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I it think does. You should, it's, it's very you mellifluous. Really consider it. I don't know why it's, it's not called an Axelrod cast, by the way. <laughs> just, that's my two cents. What, what is your... Uh, what do you hope for your work? What what do you, what what's the hope you have? Um, you know, that's what my hope and what's going to happen. I mean, it's happen. obviously more than to entertain. Uh, no, it really is. I mean, you know, Hamilton um, has a lot of politics in it because it's about the birth of politics. Um, you know, In the Heights has politics inherent in it because it's about a group of people living in a neighborhood that is changing against their will. Um, so, you know, my shows live in the world, but the politics in them are only inherent to the story I'm telling at that particular time. Um, you know, 
one of the things I learned in writing Hamilton is we don't control our legacy. So what I hope for my shows is, you know, eternally done in high schools forever. <laughs> um, but the reality is whatever happens, I have no control of that. All I can control is the work itself. Well, we're grateful for the work that you do because it's incredibly uh, impactful and entertaining. Well, and thank you. I hope, hope you do it for a very long time. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.